0: Well, good morning once again. Go ahead and open with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as we continue this this look at these uh, songs, as they've been traditionally called, but really are, um, uh, they weren't set to music, as as we've said before. And as you turn there, I will be reading uh, to you, I'll start in verse 56 and read through Uh, Verse 79 or 80, actually. "...and Mary remained with her," that was Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father." But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he he wanted him to be called. And they asked for a writing tablet and wrote, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. ...might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your word, your word that instructs us who we are, who you are, how we are to worship you, how we can be uh, set right with you, despite all of the the brokenness in our world and in our own lives and in our hearts. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would give us uh, open eyes to understand, um, soft hearts to receive it with obedience. Lord, as there is so much here and we're just barely going to scratch the surface of it, Lord, give us clarity in our thinking and understanding how you are a promise keeping god faithful and true who always does what he says he will lord we uh we ask i ask that in this time as we continue to go through this uh this surge of covid in our area and even through the church we ask that you would give us great flexibility flexibility in in how we minister flexibility in how we go about our daily lives flexibility to, uh, to be willing to accept the changes that you bring to your church. Lord, we know that we always want to be centered on your word, that our message never changes and that there are some things that you call us to that never changes. But there's also much freedom as we consider how to worship and how to praise you and how to spread the gospel. And so we ask that you would give us flexibility, not only in our ministry, but in our worship as is appropriate. Lord, we confess our fear to you we confess that our fear, uh, whatever it may be of the future, death, COVID, sickness, anything, is, is not healthy uh, because it comes out of a lack of trust in not only your goodness, uh, but of your control. And so, Father, we ask, you would, uh, we ask that you would forgive us for being such fearful creatures. But Lord, we know that you have assured us of pardon because of Jesus and all that he has done. With us, and we know that those who have trusted Him, as we're told in Romans 4 7 through 8, are blessed because our lawless deeds are forgiven and our sins are covered, and that we are blessed because you do not count our sin because of Jesus. Lord, we think this morning of First Community Church in Milton Freewater and their pastor John as he considers how to lead his congregation through this time. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified uh, in word and deed in that church, that He would preach the gospel faithfully, and that you would bless that church in accordance with his faithfulness, Lord, that you would give that church and us a great desire to reach out with the gospel and tell people about what you have done for, for us through Christ. Lord, let the words sound forth from us even today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would it be wise to, uh, to believe uh, ridiculous promises before they are Fulfilled. Let me see if I can paint a picture for you. I bet we could pack this place, even amidst COVID, if we began an advertising campaign this week that said that I was going to give a million dollars to anybody who came to church next week. Now I can make that promise. But it would be foolish to bank on that promise. It would be foolish to go out this week and buy a new home and a new car and Christmas gifts for your families because you would think, well, I'm going to come next week, I'm going to get a million dollars, and I'm going to pay it all off. It does not work that way for several reasons. One is that I simply do not have the resources to give everybody who showed up or even one person who showed up a million dollars. Second off, we don't have control. Even if I did have those kind of resources, even if I did have enough money to give a million dollars to everybody who came next week, there's no guarantee that you or I would be alive next week to receive such a promise. But who can thwart the promises of God? Who who can stop him in what he promises? What, What can he promise that he cannot deliver? I remember, you you have weird conversations when you grow up going to a Christian school, but you know, uh, upper elementary school, you know, one of the questions that is probably still going around uh, today, probably not even only in elementary schools, but was, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? It's a completely wrong question. Uh, The question is not can he, the question is would he. Here, here, let me rephrase the question for you. Can God do anything? I think the answer, biblically, is no. That might surprise us. Is he powerless to do anything? No, this is not a matter of power. This is a matter of character. Because we're told in James, for example, and, and 1 Peter, that God cannot lie. That God cannot deny himself. The problem is not one of, of ability or power with God, the, the, the problem is that of character. God's character is such that he is faithful and true, and therefore nothing that he ever says is false. But when we think about the promises that God makes, whether it's rewinding thousands of years to promises for a Savior, or even right now for promises for future and peace and eternity and heaven and blessing who can stop God in those promises? He'll never move. He'll never change his mind. He'll never say, I've made a promise and I'm not going to keep it because his character wouldn't allow him to. But what promise can he make that he does not have the spiritual power and resources to fulfill? He can deliver on every promise that he has ever made. And that is, in fact, what we are going to see today as we look at this prophecy, this song of praise from Zechariah. Two weeks ago, we saw Elizabeth's song that she was promised a son in her old age. And she rejoices over God. Uh, Mary comes to her to see her. Mary also being promised a son, goes to see and confirm the promises made to her in her uh, relative Elizabeth and finds that Elizabeth is Pregnant And first, Elizabeth responds in praise, not necessarily for her son, but for Mary's son and what Mary's son will represent. We saw that two weeks ago. Last week, we saw Mary's rejoicing over the long-awaited Messiah and the fact that she would have the privilege of being this child's mother. If what we saw two weeks ago from Elizabeth was spirit-inspired prophecy... That is, the Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she prophesies to us. And if what we saw last week from Mary's song was biblically informed worship, that as she worships God, it is informed by Scripture and Scripture pours out from her. What we see today from Zechariah is theologically rich praise. Mary's song was biblically informed worship. Zechariah's song is theologically rich praise. What's the difference between praise and worship? Uh, That's a worthwhile question for us to ask. Uh, Worship uh, has many, it's a broad term. Uh, In fact, it simply means to ascribe worth. And so everything we do ascribes worth. Worth. If we turn on our phone or open our Bible first thing in the morning, we're ascribing worth to something over another. If we choose to, um, to whatever, whatever we do, whatever choices we make, whatever our actions are, when we love money more than God, when we love the world more than the church, when we love our phones more than our Bibles, when we love our sin more than obedience, all of it is proclaiming that something is worth worth something and so what we say how we interact with people how we spend our time our money our resources how we interact with others in the church it's all worship but worship honors God for who he is the 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 core of worship is the nature and character and worth and worthiness of God And, and as I've already said it's a whole life thing All of our lives are worship of something. But praise, biblically, is usually the fruit of our lips. It's a subset of worship because our lips proclaim the worth of God. But praise usually is connected to what God has done. And while this may be an oversimplification, I'm going to say last week we saw this worship coming from Mary where she honors God for who he is, as merciful and holy, and gracious, and righteous. And today, we are going to see that Zechariah praises God for what he has done. And if you remember, rewinding back, Zechariah is a priest. He is Elizabeth's husband. He was working in the temple, and uh, Gabriel came to him to announce the birth of his son. He doubted the promise of his son, and so his lips were We're sealed. This is a man who is skilled and versed in the Word of God and had an active role in the temple, and he has not been able to speak for nine months. He was told he would not speak at all until this child was born, and so we have to understand that that there is probably, I mean, imagine not being able to speak for nine months. Even the most introverted and quiet of people would probably have something to say. Well, we're going to spend the bulk of our time considering maybe what informs some of Zechariah's praise here, and then we're going to come back to it, and hopefully the meaning of this passage will, will jump off the page for us. Remember that all of these uh, responses from Mary to Elizabeth to Zechariah, next week the angels, and the following week Simeon, they're all results, they're all praises from these people. Eruptions of joy because of the promises of God. Mary had, again I said, Elizabeth praises God because she had the privilege Of being present with the mother of the Messiah. Mary worships God for his character in providing the Messiah, and Zechariah here rejoices over God's keeping his promises. Notice with me in verse 68. The first thing God, uh, Zechariah does is he begins by blessing God. We've seen this word before. We saw it uh, last week. It means uh, spoken well of. He is speaking well of God. This is the fruit of his lips. It is, it is praise spoken well of. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Visited here doesn't mean like just showed up, paid a visit to like you had a guest. The the idea here of visited is that, that he showed up, he came among his people to do something, to bless them, to care for them. God has showed up and visited his people. And what is it that he has done? He has redeemed them. And verse 69, and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now horn here is not like a trumpet. It's not like a a musical instrument announcing that he has arrived. It's not like the king arriving in a foreign land with great pomp and circumstances and horns being blown. No, the horn referred to here would be like a ram's horn or a, a bull's horn. It was, it was a horn that was used, it was, it was symbolic of strength. It was, it was a, a means of, of defending and dominating and showing power. And so what, uh, what uh, Zechariah is saying here is that God is blessed, he has spoken well of because he has visited his people, he has redeemed them, and he has raised up this, this promised horn. This would not have been a new idea to the people of Israel, And for sake of time, we don't have, uh, we're not going to track that idea of horn all the way through the Old Testament, but but this would have rung uh, uh, in their hearts as God's fulfillment of his promises, that he has raised up a strong one, a, a dominant one, somebody who is redeeming his people and providing salvation for us. And then he says this really strange thing here in the house of his servant, David. Now, if we remember the context of what's going on here, Zechariah is a priest, and when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, and even, in fact, before that, uh, if you go, if you're in Luke still, look with me at chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. The significance here is that uh, the Levites, the the priests who served in the temple, and and Elizabeth being a daughter of Aaron, were not relatives of David. David was from the the kingly tribe of Judah, where where Israel's kings came from. In fact, uh, all of the line of David following uh, him comes from that tribe because they are his descendants, So here Zechariah cannot be talking about his own son. Think about that again. Uh, An angel comes to him in the temple at the hour of prayer, says, you're going to have a son. He doubts. He seals up his lips. Nine months later, this old man, a priest, and his old wife, who had been barren, Shame for both of them. No one to carry on their name or line or house would have been seen in their day and their culture as shameful. God has taken away their shame. He has given them a son. The time has come. The son is born. After eight days, they go to the temple. And while they're in the temple, God opens Zechariah's mouth And what pours out of him is blessing and honor for what God has done in visiting and redeeming his people. I think if I were John, what would have come out of my mouth would probably have been mostly about me. I'm pretty selfish that way. And yet, when Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and prophesies, he doesn't give us a prophecy about what God is doing through this son that was just born to him. No, he's giving us a prophecy, a praise uh, to God for what he has done in redeeming his people and visiting them and bringing salvation to them in the house of his servant David. He's not even talking about his own son. This praise that erupts out of Zechariah, same as did with Elizabeth, is all about this child that Mary is carrying, not about his own son in the removal of their shame, and the giving of good gifts. Zechariah and Elizabeth understood what worship was because they saw that what was supremely valuable was not what God gave to them in their son, their circumstances, or anything else, but what God has given for, to them by redeeming them and saving them through Jesus Christ. And he goes on, After speaking of this child that Mary is still carrying, this horn of salvation that is going to be raised up in the house of David, the servant of God, he mentions two people by name. Of course, David and verse 73, Abraham. Why would Zechariah mention these two names? Well, I think in order to understand what Zechariah is telling us here and why he is so excited about this child that is coming through Mary and and the son and his son, John, as representative of this child, we have to understand the promises of God as as Zechariah did. And so today, I want to talk about covenants. I'm going to talk about covenants, and we're going to look at six covenants in the Bible. Now, what is a covenant? It is greater than a promise. A promise or a contract is usually marked by an agreement that if you do something, then I will do something as well. Businesses do this all the time. If I give you money, you will give me product. If I give you money, you will give me services. Or maybe we're exchanging goods. If I give you this good, you will give me that good. Those are contracts. The two parties are bound in a relationship uh, that is a give and take relationship. Covenants, however, are much stronger than contracts, Uh, My definition of covenant is simple. Here it is, I believe it's on the slide. A covenant is an irrevocable promise of God. A covenant is an irrevocable promise of God. It is when God says, I'm gonna do something and no matter what happens, I will do it. And God has made six covenants. There are some who identify more in scripture, uh, but but there are six covenants covenants that are named covenants in scripture and so i want us to skim these briefly and see these six irrevocable promises of god in his word and then we're going to come back to zechariah's promise here and see why zechariah sees these two sons john his son jesus who will be mary's son as the fulfillment of those promises so the first covenant and these are in order as they're given to us excuse me, is the Noahic covenant, the Noahic covenant. It's pretty small up there. Uh, Hopefully you can see that, but I'll give you some stuff to, uh, to fill in. Now, the Noahic covenant is named so because it was the covenant given to Noah. And as we look at each of these covenants, we're gonna talk about the scope of the covenant. That is, who is it given to? How broad is this promise? Is it a very narrow promise given to some people? Or is it a very broad promise given to many people? We're going to look at the substance of the covenant. That is, what was it that was promised in this covenant? We're going to look at the sign of the covenant. Some of them have signs, some of them do not. And then we're going to look at the span. How long does this covenant last? And so we'll start with the Noahic covenant. We, we all know that God flooded the earth. He saved Noah and his family. And after the waters subsided and Noah leaves the ark, God made him a promise. And the promise, that is the substance of the Noahic covenant, was that the earth would never again be destroyed by a flood. The scope of this is universal. It's given to all people for all time, as long as the earth exists. God will be done with the world someday, and, and he will undo everything he has made and give us a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. But until that time, when God is done with this heaven and this earth, this promise is for every person, that the earth will never again be destroyed by a flood. The sign of that covenant is the rainbow. And every time we see a rainbow, we should understand it as God's recommitment, his reminding us of his covenant never to flood the earth. And the span of that covenant, as I've already said, is from Noah and the flood in Genesis 8 all the way to the end of time, the end of history on this earth. That is the Noahic covenant. The second covenant is the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. If the Noahic covenant can be found in Genesis 8, the Abrahamic covenant, and this should indicate to us how important this covenant is, can be found in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, 22, 26, 28, and 35. This is an important covenant. The scope of the covenant, who is this covenant given to, is to Israel. It is a covenant given to Israel primarily. It is given to Israel primarily. What do I mean by primarily? Well, when God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, pack up, leave where you live, Ur of the Chaldeans, and go to this land that I've promised you, look at the stars, look at the sand, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach, if you can count them all. That is a covenant that is primarily given to Abraham and his descendants who would become the nation of Israel. However, the part of the covenant to Abraham was that that nation that would come from his descendants, from Abraham's descendants, would bless the whole world, that every nation would be affected by this one nation. And so while, there, while the scope of the Abrahamic covenant is given to the nation of Israel, part of the promise that God made to that nation is that the whole world would be blessed. The substance of that promise, the substance of that covenant, was that this nation would, would one, be a nation, that there would be land, And that they would be a blessing to all nations. Now this is a reference to the Messiah. A reference to Jesus who would bear the sins on the cross not just of the nation of Israel but of anyone who would believe in him. Whether Jew or Gentile from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. I think it's interesting, and one of the things that we can see is that God, uh, in, in God's fulfillment of his promises, is he promises the nation of Israel. Of course, it's not named that because Israel is one of Abraham's grandchildren. Uh, but but he, God promises this nation land and a nation and to be a blessing. How many nations in the history of mankind after having ceased to be a nation, have returned to their land, returned to being a nation, returned to speaking their language. Anybody want to fashion a guess? Just one. Israel is the only nation in the history of the world ever to have been destroyed as a nation and then returned as a nation to its land and with its language and with its people. The sign of that uh, covenant to Abraham was circumcision. And I believe, though there are some who disagree, I believe the span of the Abrahamic covenant to be from the time God gave it to Abraham, starting in Genesis 12, uh, to the end of all time. I think it's an eternal, I think it's an, etern- I think it's a, t- an, an not eternal, but, but I think it spans the entire time of human history. The span of the Abrahamic covenant is from Abraham to the destruction of the earth. And, and we see, really, that it continues to be true, because every spiritual blessing now I want to make a bold point here, but I want to prove it every single spiritual blessing that you and I have received has been funneled to us through the nation of Israel. Every single one. Uh, in Romans chapter 9, Paul speaks of what has come from the nation of Israel. And he tells us that their adoption, that is as sons, the glory, the covenants, which we're speaking about today, the law, the worship, the promises, and even the Christ have come through the nation of Israel. We worship a Jewish nation savior who we are told about through jewish scriptures and who as we will see here in a few moments sits on a jewish throne god has funneled all spiritual blessings through this nation why because he promised abraham that he would that he would make him a nation and that every blessing would come through that nation we got to get moving though Next, thirdly, is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. That is Exodus 19 through 24. This is after the release of the people of Israel from the nation of Egypt. They're wandering in the desert. Moses goes up to Sinai. God gives initially ten commandments. He expands over time on, on the law given there to Moses. So the Mosaic Covenant is this, this covenant that God makes between himself and the nation of Israel. And so that's our scope. It is a national covenant. It is given to the nation of Israel. And, and it is a, a little bit different than the other covenants. It is still irrevocable, but it is a bit of an if-then covenant where God says, if you obey, there will be blessings, and if you disobey, there will be cursings. I will bless you if you obey me, and I will bring calamity on you if you do not. The substance Of that covenant was the temple, which was first the tabernacle and then became the temple. It was worship, it was law, it was sacrifice, it was blessing and cursing to this nation. The signs of that covenant were both sacrifice of animals at the temple and Sabbath, a day of rest. And the span was Moses to Pentecost, Moses, to 40 days after Jesus died, and the church is founded. And that that covenant is not to anyone besides the nation of Israel, and it is not a covenant or law that we are under today. Fourthly, the fourth covenant is the priestly covenant. We're going to go over this one very, very quickly, and it can be found in Numbers 25. The scope of this covenant is to the Levites, to the temple priests, to Zechariah, and to his family who are serving in the temple. And the substance is an eternal priesthood. An eternal priesthood. Now, not, not just earthly, but eternal. Now, you might think, well, I don't need a priest. Oh, yes, you do. You and I desperately need a priest. I am not that priest. We don't need another earthly priest because Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. A priest was somebody who stood between two parties, God on one hand, people on the other, and, and, and brought those two distant parties together. In the old covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, that was fulfilled by people who offered sacrifices for their sins and then for the sins of the nation, who stood between the people of God and God. But because of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who perpetually and continually ministers before the Father on our behalf, who is our mediator, as as Hebrews calls him, We don't need another human high priest. We have an eternal and uttermost high priest in Jesus Christ. And so we need a priest. It's just that Jesus Christ is that priest. So this is an eternal priesthood. The sign? None. No sign was given to this covenant. And the span was Aaron through eternity. Fifthly, the Davidic covenant. This is the kingly covenant covenant. It's found in 2 Samuel 7 and 23. In fact, it's not called a covenant in 2 Samuel 7. It's not called a covenant until 2 Samuel 23. But the scope of this covenant is initially to David, but ultimately it's a universal covenant. It's a a covenant made between God and David and his offspring, the the, the descendants of David, but it has universal effect. And the substance of of this covenant, was that there would be a king on the throne of David's family forever. Now that king is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There is no king on the throne in Israel right now. Israel has a prime minister, but there is a king on the throne of all creation, and he is a Jewish king, and his name is Jesus, and he is a descendant of David. The sign There is none. There is no sign. The span is eternal. Jesus will always reign as king. Now, that being a very brief overview of the covenants, there are two covenants in that list of five. Now, I know I told you I was going to give you six, and we're going to get to the sixth one here in just a minute. There are two covenants in that list of five that have a, a similarity between the two of them that none of the rest of the covenants have, and that is the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham to make his descendants a nation and to give them land and that the whole world would be blessed through them. And the Davidic covenant that a king would sit on the throne of the family of David forever. The similarities between them are many. They both both promise land. They both promise descendants. They both promise kingdom. They are both Unconditional, as all of the covenants are. And they, but here's the catch. Here's what separates them from all of the other, other covenants. They both promise salvation. They both promise that God would bless us by sending a descendant of Abraham and David who would bless the whole world by saving them from their sins. But here's another similarity. While both of the, those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, promise salvation, neither of them provide it. They both promise salvation, but neither of them provide it. And that is why we need a new covenant, a new covenant. That's the sixth covenant there. And and we find the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, and I will read that to you. You can turn there if you like. But Jeremiah chapter 31, verses uh, 31 through 34, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. He's saying it's not like the Mosaic covenant. It's not like the system of rules and temple worship that I made with Moses on Mount Sinai. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more and so while there was these old covenants that promised salvation where, where there was these old covenants that, that uh, put an external law on God's people. God says there's a day coming when my law will not be an external thing by force, will be an internal thing. It will be a a change of heart. It will be a change of affection. It will not be an external law that I impose upon you. It will be a new nature that I give you and I will forgive their sins and I will remember them no more. In other words, these covenants that I've promised, these promises that I've made to bring about salvation and to raise up a horn, this, this strong one who will save the people from their sins, who will redeem them, who will buy them back, back to me, I'm going to make a new covenant. The scope of this covenant, however, it's not national, it's individual. That doesn't mean we're not brought into a corporate faith, but it means if if you've been born into a family of believers, it does not automatically make you a believer. Every individual in this covenant must take part in it by faith by an individual surrender of the will in worship to God. The substance of this covenant is salvation. It is the forgiveness of sins. It is the fixing of all wrongdoing. The sign of the covenant is new hearts. It is also communion and baptism, which is why believers participate in those things. And the span of it is eternal Now, those are the six covenants in Scripture. This has probably been highly technical. Forgive me. We're going to come back to the text now, and hopefully this will explode with meaning off of the page. Because in Luke 1, as I've said, Zechariah mentions two names. In verse 69, he mentions the house of his servant David. And in verse 73, he talks about the oath that God swore to our father Abraham. By pointing out these two covenants, as as Zechariah praises God here, he is telling us that the new covenant is here. The promise of salvation found in the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant is now going to be provided. God is going to fulfill all of the promises that he's made for more than a thousand years to the nation of Israel in this child, not his son, mary's son the horn of salvation for us in the house of david and so i want to look at these very very quickly i want us to see these these three covenants fulfilled the fulfillment of the promise to david the fulfillment of the promise to abraham and the fulfillment of the new covenant and these will go very quickly the fulfillment of the promise to David is found in verses 69 through 71. In fact, we'll look at verse 68 as well. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has, redeemed, he has visited and redeemed his people and raised, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us our greatest enemy by the way that we are saved from is not external it's internal it's our self it's our sin that destroys our relationship with God and with each other what is the greatest of all enemies that needs defeated in our life that Jesus came to defeat it is sin but the Lord swore to David a sure oath Psalm 132.11 says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And Psalm 132.17 reads, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Israel knew from the Psalms and other scriptures that that this horn that would be raised up in the house of David was the fulfillment of these promises. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We've already seen it this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zechariah is telling us the promise of salvation made by God to David is here. He has arrived, this horn from the house of David. And then he goes on to explain to us the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Verse 72, uh, let's pick up there. To show mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. Notice that he does not say to show mercy provided to our fathers. Now, this does not mean that, they, that Old Testament saints could not be saved. It simply means that God had not provided the means of their forgiveness yet. He promised them p- forgiveness. He promised them a horn. He promised them salvation. And Jesus is here to do exactly that which was promised, to bring the mercy of God and to remember God's Holy Covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. This is exactly what Jesus came to do to give us new hearts, to turn our hearts from a love of sin to a love of God, to forgive us of our sins, to redeem us from our sins, to free us from our sins and turn us to God that we might worship him without fear in holiness and righteousness before God all our days. By faith, righteousness was counted to Abraham and by faith it is counted To us, when we believe in this baby, not John, but Jesus, in his sinless life, in his death in our place, and in his victorious resurrection, the righteousness of Christ is counted to us as it was to Abraham and as it was promised thousands of years. Before And then in verses 76 to 79, Zechariah shows us not only how this child, Jesus, fulfills the Davidic covenant and fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, but he fulfills the promise of the new covenant. And in verse 76, by the way, notice it shifts to John and you child. So verses 68 through 75 are about the horn in the house of God's servant David. That's all about Jesus. Now he shifts to John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You will go before the horn. You will go in front of him, as we're told in Malachi 3.1. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And why is God going to provide the forgiveness of sins for these people? Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The sun is coming. He uses S-U-N here, but we might insert S-O-N. Mary is carrying him. He is on his way, but you, child, you've been born. You're going to go before him. You're going to be the promised forerunner of Isaiah and Malachi, and you are going to to begin to show the world that, that the light is coming into the world, that Jesus is here, that he's going to redeem his people from his sins, that he is going to fulfill all of the promises of God. That every promise of God will find their yes and amen in him. But John, this child, what does he represent? He represents the dawn. He represents the light beginning to shine. The sun is beginning to come up. He's here. He has arrived. It is time for this new covenant. It is dawning. The sun is not up yet Mary is still carrying him, and he won't go into public ministry for another 30 years after she bears him. And after that, he won't die for another three years. But John the Baptist is the light before the sun. He is the fulfillment, not, not John, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Oh, it is my prayer that my faith in this child, this horn of salvation, who lived the sinless life that you and I cannot live, who died in our place to pay for the penalty of our sin because of the tender mercy of our God and who was raised victoriously, oh, I pray that you through faith have entered in to the new covenant of God for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have, if you are trusting in the righteousness of Christ for the defeat of your greatest enemy, sin, if you are trusting in the righteousness of Christ to be your righteousness that makes you acceptable to God, if you are trusting in his death as the death that gives you life and his resurrection as the victorious proof that he is able to offer life, oh, it deserves the uttermost praise. Not only from our lips, but from our whole lives as we display that this, this child, this horn is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God and worth our uttermost devotion and affection. Lord, you are a promise-keeping God. And, and hundreds of years before Jesus came, you promised that he would come and would save us From our sins, because you are a tenderly merciful God. Because you delight in showing mercy. And you delight in mercy so much that you are willing to bear the penalty of our sin, so that you could be merciful to us. Lord, we know that all of the defeat of all of the difficult things in our life death, sin, sadness, sickness, all of those problems are fixed in Jesus Christ, who you raised up in the house of David to redeem us and to provide salvation for us. Lord, may we see him as the ultimate fulfillment of all of your promises. May we be content in him. May we have joy in him. May he be the reason for our joy and excitement and praise and worship this season. And Lord, I pray particularly so this year, as I think many of us feel weary and tired of being separated, spread out in this room, unable to gather or worship, some who watch faithfully online, unable to get out of their care homes. Lord, may you combat all of that difficulty and struggle and sadness with the joy of the birth of this son. And may may we see that we're not just looking at the dawn, but we live in the light of the son who came and died for us and lived for us and lives perpetually forever, eternally before you as our great high priest to cover every single one of our sins and ultimately someday usher us into the perfection of heaven. May we give him and you through him the praise and worship and honor that you deserve. For your glory and for our good, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.